0: Pray with me, if you would. Father,
1: we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who qualifies us and summons us to pray to You.
0: We confess that we need You every hour.
1: Indeed, every moment we need You. We need You in ways that even the most humble among us cannot see. We confess our pride for imagining or passively acting as if we do not need you. Please forgive us for this pride and grant that we may walk in glad submission to you as our provider, defender, shelter, protector.
0: Cause us by your Spirit to come to you, casting every care, anxiety, and need upon you if you would, just briefly,
1: in your own mind and heart, where you are, pray that this time would be honoring to the Lord, that I would speak clearly, that you would all be able to hear, and
0: that we would prefer one another in these moments. now may
1: the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So as we continue our series on prayer, today we will consider prayers of petition. Prayers of petition. To do this, we will investigate Psalm 107 you would go ahead and turn there in your copy of God's Word, Psalm 107, you can find that on page 474 in the Pew Bible that should be around you. Please use that, or use one of those copies if your device tends to be a distraction for you in these moments.
0: Psalm 107.
1: I've titled this sermon, uh, Petition, Praying in the Fight, because... No matter the situation you are in, no matter what your life is like, you are indeed in a fight. It only takes eyes of faith, biblically informed eyes, to see what that fight really is. This psalm, Psalm 107, shows us that the fight is ultimately about the Lord and His desire to be our strong fortress and deliverer, and to be seen as such by us, His people. We'll see that proven in each section of the psalm. Even in situations where the trouble is our own fault, His fight, His purpose, His mission is to prove to us that He is the one we really need. That idea is the central thesis of this sermon. God is fighting or wrestling, as we just sang, if we may put it that way, striving with the human heart to extract from it a particular kind of glory for Himself from joy-filled hearts who know Him and come to Him for every need. That's how He wants to be praised. That's how He wants to be worshipped. No matter the form of the foe or the flavor of the trial that we face, God is ordaining to bring us to our knees so that we will cry out to Him. And it is all for our good. This is the process that He is ordained to bring us through. We can see this theme at play, I think, in, in many ways throughout the history of God's people Think of even the sin of our first parents. It was a multifaceted sin, to be sure, but one of the most simple ways to think about that original sin was a statement of defiance and independence. We don't trust you, and we don't really need you. That was the central error. It seems that that pattern is at play and playing out in the lives of God's people on repeat over and over. We seem to always struggle with that very same thing. We're tempted to not trust Him and we're tempted to think or act as if we don't really need Him. For example, one example, even in the very nuanced sin of religious pride, the legal spirit that we all
0: possess at some level is saying, "I don't really need you. I've got this i
1: I at least don't need you as much as those other people who really need Jesus. That's what we're saying when we look down on others. This psalm, Psalm 107, is dearly beloved by many, and has been a precious gem of Holy Scripture for the people of God over the millennia. The title given to it, Let the Redeemed of the Lord Say So, from verse 2, shows us that this psalm is a psalm of beckoning. It beckons to us. Many times when you read the Psalms, we're watching things play out in the lives and hearts of the psalmists that we aren't necessarily experiencing. So David is being chased by King Saul, and it's very difficult for us to relate to that kind of experience. And if you have had such an experience, come talk to me. I might use you as a sermon illustration. The king of your nation hunting you down... Yeah, that's some intense stuff. And so he prays out of that distress to the Lord, and we watch this unfold in the heart of David. But this psalm summons us, like many others, but this is one of them, to feel this way, to say these very
0: things as we approach the Lord.
1: The psalm is... Different. It summons us to say so. The redeemed of the Lord, those who call on His name, should be saying things like this. That's the point. And so when we pray prayer as a petition, we're, we're looking to Scripture as a model to both teach us and to give examples to us for what it looks like to pray rightly to the Lord. We should pray these kinds of things to God because God is dead set on making sure that His people always know how much they need Him.
0: The Lord desires that we should be a people who are joyfully amazed more and
1: more by our massive need for Him. That's what this is about. And first, I want to address a problem. And and I, I will address this by stating it in the positive. Prayers of petition are good and right. Prayers of petition are good and right. There is a lot of inappropriate embarrassment out there within the people of God that maybe you feel right now when it comes to prayers of petition. Because of terrible and wicked things like the so-called prosperity gospel, we know in response to those errors that we should not seek the Lord's blessing as an end in itself. Hopefully you know that. Hopefully you do not seek God's hand, His blessing, that which He can do for you without first seeking Him as Him. That would be an error. There are so many forms of subtle idolatry in praying for things like health finances stability family advancement as a result we so we know this and as a result we become or at least knowing my own heart i think it is possible that we can become embarrassed to ask at all maybe we lack the necessary nuance in our minds perhaps we forget just how much the lord wants to be seen and known
0: as the God who provides. Or what may be worse, we start thinking that it is less spiritual to pray for things like food,
1: shelter, and clothing, and good work. Because God is more interested in the super spiritual stuff like patience, hope, love, and peace.
0: Or worst of all, we pray, not even believing that it really does anything. Other than maybe help us mature when God, likely, we feel, doesn't do what we ask.
1: Is that how you think about the Lord and about your prayers? And in a sense, we do see that disparity. Of course, we should want to be more like Jesus more than we want our next meal. Right? So get that settled in your heart. If you want your next meal more than you want to be like Jesus, you've got the whole hierarchy messed up in your heart. But, we seem to forget the stories. Jesus showed us what it was like to live a perfect life of faith which often meant praying to His Fathers for things like His very next meal. That's what's going on. In positioning His heart towards the Father as the One who provided Him with everything He needed. That's what it meant to live a perfect life. We are physical beings. And so, for us, we're not angelic or purely spiritual. The stuff of our lives, the physical stuff, is God's good creation and it is precisely the stuff of His plan to make us more like Christ. let me put this even more precisely as we ramp up to look at this prayer of petition of Psalm 107. Your food is not just your food. It is the very most basic object lesson of your need, of your dependence on God. Why do you think the New Covenant celebration is a meal? It's it's an ongoing, repeat object lesson of how much we need Him. So when we, we receive food, it's meant to teach us. These are just examples. Your clothing is not just clothing. It is the most basic object lesson for us that we need a covering We need a covering for our sin and guilt, and we need a covering for protection against the elements. It is an object lesson in our frailty, frailty before a holy God and frailty before the consequences of our sin. Our need for a job, health, mental stability, emotional peace are not tainted because they're not spiritual enough. Some of us think that. No, God designed you to need them so that he could really be your provider
0: and caretaker.
1: In our frailty, in more pronounced way than he is the provider caretaker for beings like the angels. This is why we are made lower than the angels. So these are just a few ways that prayers of petition for provision are much more spiritual and glorious than you think. There's so much more at play in them than just the stuff that you ask for.
0: So the fight in the title of the sermon,
1: praying in the fight can mean multiple things. It, of course, refers to the fight that we may find ourselves in, the fight for a better situation, the fight with sin, the fight for uh, a better relationship, whatever it is. But most fundamentally, it refers to God's fight, His quest, His passion, to have us yield to our dependency, our frailty, and our contingent nature. Through our dependence and weakness, He sanctifies us. As he creates broken
0: and contrite hearts in us.
1: See, the point is that we would become the kind of beings who humbly and happily know and feel our deep and purposeful dependence on him forever. We will approach this text like we did last week with Psalm 106. I will read sections from the Psalm and then comment on them briefly. Our question today then is this What does Psalm 107 teach us about prayers of petition?
0: Verses 1 through
1: 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered them in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. The first thing we see from these, these introduction verses is, number one, that gratitude grows out of experience. It's one thing to teach about gratitude. I could define it for you. I could compare gratitude versus negative emotions, or I could uh, compare it with other positive things. But that's different than experiencing gratitude and having the experiences that lead up to gratitude. The psalmist here commands us to thank the Lord. And what follows in the psalm is a description of why we should thank the Lord. Why we ought to give thanks to them. Of course, we can thank Him for things that have very little to do with us directly. But the Lord has designed us, humans, to be the kind of creatures who bring peculiar honors to Him because He has shown His goodness to us directly in delivering us
0: out of our troubles. This is the point.
1: The gratitude that we are supposed to give to the Lord is rooted in us seeing His love on display as He answers our crying out to Him for deliverance.
0: His steadfast
1: love that endures forever is not merely a theological truth to be known. It is a fundamental reality to be lived in as we experience the needs and troubles of our lives. What would it change about your prayers? What more would you be so bold enough to ask from the Lord if you saw the needs that you have and the lack that you have as the stage on which God has designed to prove His steadfast love to you?
0: I think we would be more apt to pray and come to Him
1: with every need, anxiety, Requests. The second thing we see in these introduction verses is that our trouble is the arena of praise. Trouble is the arena of praise. There's a sense in which God has ordained all of this, trouble is God's plan. This must be true because nothing happens outside of God's sovereign will. But consider that just as an infant or maybe even some older children can't even scratch the surface of the degree of appreciation they should have for their parents for all of the sacrifices they make for them. So we, if we never encounter trouble, if we never go through a season of life that we can really feel our desperation, then we will never appreciate God's steadfast love and His loving deliverance. This is why the circumstances surrounding our conversion matter so much. If there's not a point at which you felt your desperation before a holy God, it's worth asking whether or not it was the Gospel you came to believe. The Gospel is only good news to those who have come to the end of themselves and seen their spiritual desperation. How much peace though Would it give in your life if you merely remember that all the trouble you face is ordained and hedged in by the Lord to cause you to be more intimately acquainted with His salvation, protection, and provision? Of course, there are uncomfortable follow-up questions and implications right here, especially considering all the heartache of our lives but the lord wills to be known and worshiped as the one who redeems you and for something to be redeemed it first has to become in a worthless essentially in a really really bad situation god cannot be known as your redeemer unless you need to be redeemed
0: you may hate this idea Because you may have suffered greatly. But what else do you have? Where else can you
1: go except to his sovereign throne? How can he be your only hope of redemption from all your troubles if he was powerless or passive in then coming into your life in the first
0: place? Don't worry.
1: God will bring recompense on the guilty and vindication for the righteous. There will not be one ounce of unjust suffering that goes wasted. The scales of God's holy justice will be perfectly balanced on the last day. But in the meantime, our troubles are filled with glorious purpose for the Lord. And for us, He shows us His steadfast love through redeeming and providing and delivering us in our troubles. Never give up praying as long as your heart's desire is to see the Lord display His love even on your behalf. Even if you're the one to benefit and to gain from it, don't be embarrassed. He wants to be seen as your Redeemer and Deliverer. The third thing we see from these introduction verses is that God's provision is Godward. The Lord delivers His people from all their troubles to bring them to Him. I think we've developed an unhealthy heaven-earth binary where the arrows of provision are from heaven down to
0: us. We think, or
1: when we think, when we imagine, when we pray, things come to mind. Images, pictures come to mind. And I think... Maybe the way that many of us think is something like this. Not exactly like this, but we, when we pray, God is up there in heaven and, and He hears the prayers come up to Him and, and he, he listens to it and then He peers over the floor of heaven looking down to us and takes His glory TI-89 and calculates if He's going to receive enough glory from answering that prayer. And if the answer is yes, then He'll give that to us. And so we'll pray and we'll just think, well, maybe if it brings Him enough glory, He'll answer and, and do what we ask. Maybe in your mind it's not such a silly picture.
0: Perhaps it's worse for you.
1: Maybe you see the Lord as an enigma that you can never decode or figure out. One pastor of mine in the past said that praying can
0: sometimes feel like the buttons we press on the crosswalk. Do they ever really help anything? Does it ever really change anything to press that button? And either way, the answer always seems the same. Wait! Is that what
1: you think about God? Instead, the image that should come to our minds when we pray to God is Him drawing us in. Further up and further in. The Lord always behaves this way. The arrows always point homeward. Every possible deliverance, every help, every redemption, as it plays out in our lives, is part of God bringing us to glory. That's exactly what's happening in verses 1-3. through 3. He has redeemed the people out of trouble, bringing them from the east and the west, from the south and the north, to Him. What would it change about your prayers if you saw your trouble and your need as a necessary episode in the long story of God bringing you to heaven. I've said before, I'll say it again, God is far more interested in saving you than you are interested in being saved. That's absolutely true. And the things that He ordains to bring into your life are part of His plan to do this very thing.
0: To use the example from the text last week
1: that I referred to, why did the Lord answer Elijah's prayer regarding the rain? Because God was ultimately interested in saving the
0: remnant that He had kept for Himself.
1: We must never be embarrassed or dishonor the Lord's creation by thinking that little prayers like for food, clothing, and shelter, a job, a restored relationship, peace, finances, or any kind of blessing If we desire those things to help us, and to help us help others, make it home safely. And I believe it is possible to connect every single prayer of petition, every single prayer for any type of deliverance, any type of help, any type of thing that you need to those very ends. And wisdom, biblical wisdom, is connecting the dots.
0: how astounding
1: and how God-sized might your prayers be if you could ground them in that framework. Of course, God is still God. Praise Him. He still reserves the right to say no even if we're thinking that we're asking them rightly. He sees the whole picture and we do not. He knows best.
0: But He cares more about
1: saving us and all those He's given into the hands of His beloved Son And He will do and has done anything and everything to ensure that they come home. Appeal to Him based on His desire to bring all His sons and daughters from the ends of the earth to worship before Him. Our problem
0: isn't that God doesn't answer our prayers. It's that we're not that interested in His purposes.
1: Verses 4 through 9. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way, till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. For He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with good things. This is the first episode in this psalm. And it refers to the Exodus, I think. But the themes that play in the Exodus and the wilderness wandering are playing on repeat in this present age. I think the, the author of Hebrews, as, as we just read in, in Hebrews 4, shows that that those themes of rest and entering God's rest are happening even now. And think of that massive disparity between the first attempt to uh, enter to enter the promised land and the second attempt. At the first attempt to, answer, uh, to enter, rather sorry, I can't talk this morning uh, the children of Israel say, "No, we're not going to go. We're not going to trust God. Uh, there'll be giants in the land. And so we're not going to obey. And, and then the second time, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they were able to go in, and they didn't all die. But the reason behind that disparity... I think could be identified as that they were not desperate enough. If they had understood their own desperation and helplessness all along the way, then they would have understood that Canaan's giants and its walled cities were no match for the Lord who had at every step delivered them. Not by their own strength. Not by their own faith. Not even because of Moses or Joshua. It was the Lord. And if they knew their desperation, if they knew their intense need and that it was all Him from start to finish, then they would have known that that theme would have played on in, into
0: Canaan. In their hearts, the people
1: still needed a forging in the wilderness so that they would come to the end of themselves to finally root out The pride of self-reliance so that they could come to trust the Lord. Understand, this is very, very basic. You understand that those two are related, don't you? Rooting out pride and self-reliance is a prerequisite to trusting the Lord in the ways that you ought. You can't have both at the same time.
0: If you've never been through a time in your life
1: where you've experienced absolute desperation, if you've never been knocked down to the depths, if you've never come to the end of yourself completely, then you probably don't have a lot of maturity going on in your heart. You don't walk around with A profound conviction on the far side of that wounding and that trial that you don't have it all together, that you are not all that in a bag of potato chips, and you are not skilled to understand even one smidgen of what God has willed or planned. If those aren't foundational building blocks of your life and your self-awareness, then there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But you see, this is exactly God's kind and fatherly intentions towards us in bringing us to that point of desperation. It's all planned. It's part of His purpose. Only on the far side of that type of desperation will faith come to perfection. That principle was true even in the life of Jesus. He proved by His life that He... Even he did not trust the Father because it was easy for him. No, the second person of the Trinity, the dearly beloved Son of God, trusted in God even as the Father himself brought him to anguish and desperation.
0: We do not pray
1: enough. We do not pray enough prayers of petition because we're too stubborn, we're too proud. And in God's kindness for most of us, He does not instantly humble us to the point of desperation. If He did, it would probably kill us.
0: How much more would you pray then if you genuinely felt your desperate need of Him?
1: What wilderness are you making a necessary part of your maturity by not yielding to the undeniable truth
0: of your desperate need of Him. It took the children of Israel 40 years to come to a point where they knew how much they needed Him. What about us? What grace are we forfeiting? What needless pains are we bearing?
1: The design of the Lord is so plain. This, this pattern, this, this, this way that God works of bringing us to desperation, just like He did the children of Israel, so that they would cry out to Him is so clear from my perspective as a pastor. Even though I don't, I don't know half of what goes on and I, I probably know less than that. But just in our life as a church together, in those moments where we have come as a congregation to points of desperation, that's when it seems that the Lord has matured us a lot. And those of you who have been here longer and have been to those tear-filled prayer meetings, you know what I'm talking about? And was it not the case as we wrestled through that and had Kleenex boxes through this room that the Lord grew us But when the season of desperation passes, we bulk up and and our pride returns. And the humility that we thought we were walking in proves to be just a shadow, a passing shadow.
0: The Lord is kind. Bringing us to our knees so that we will cry out to Him. Because we do need Him.
1: When the people of God don't need such trials to be brought to a point of desperation to where we instinctively, not because things are going off the rails, but instinctively cry out to Him, Lord, we need You. That is not an indication of the beginning of the revival. That is revival, brothers and sisters. May it be said of us, even at this little church. Maybe I've not modeled this well, but this attitude of desperation is exactly the spirit that I'm going for that needs to happen in our prayer gatherings. Not just here, but in our growth groups. Everywhere else we pray together, that degree of desperation is what we need. The problem is that we're too proud and it takes us too long to realize that we're out of options. We're always out of options. We need Him. The Lord must answer or we are undone. That's it. End of story. Verse 10. Some sat in darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High so He bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. This episode in the psalm could be about almost any instance in Israel's history. This this could overlay the period of the judges, the period of the kings, or even the exile. And I would argue that it's also an overlay for
0: our lives.
1: In this episode, I think we can see something that is often lost on us about the Lord's discipline. The Lord desires things to come full circle, not just to end in pain, punishment, and correction. Remember, as we considered the sin of our first parents, it all comes back to either not trusting the Lord or not thinking that we need Him. For us, His children then, there is no other point of His disciplining us than to bring us to a point that we trust Him and know that we need Him.
0: As counterintuitive as it might sound,
1: if you have not come to the place of praying fervently and humbly to the Lord for mercy, then you have not yet learned what the discipline was meant to teach you in the first place. We don't realize it, but that pride underneath our rebellion in some of our obvious sins is the same pride that prevents us coming to Him pleading for mercy. God's discipline of His children is different than we might expect. Many of you may operate in a sin-consequence structure with disciplining your children. But that's only part of the answer. And that's not even the main thing that God is up to in this discipline that we see of Him for the children of Israel. Of course, His discipline of His children and our discipline of our children is meant to warn them. It is to warn them in giving them some taste, some shadow of the eternal consequences of sin. But fear of consequences
0: is not God's objective. If you
1: think that is with your children, you still have a long way to go, I think. But what does God do? What does the Lord do in in this episode when His wayward children cry to Him for mercy? He gives it.
0: Further, what's the point? To get them
1: to the place Where they trust Him and know they need Him. Because abandoning those truths is what got them into the sin in the first place. It's what it means to shepherd the heart of children. God does this same thing. What would it change then about your prayers of petition if you saw God's purpose behind the trials, behind the troubles, and behind the problems you face as securing your heart to trust Him? and to come to Him for everything you need.
0: God is not trying to get His pound
1: of flesh from you through His discipline of you. For to endure hardship as discipline, the author of Hebrews says, God has nothing punitive towards you as a son or daughter. He is not punishing you. He is teaching you. And the thing He is teaching you is to trust Him and to know that you need Him for
0: everything.
1: So, when the Lord ordains that your heart is bowed down like this episode recounts, when you fall under the weight of trial and when there is none to help and it's because of your sin,
0: what is your response? is life we live in a fallen world I must have done something wrong Lord knows I deserve worse just my cross to bear
1: and all those could be true in a sense but this text clearly shows that the Lord delights most in the soul's deep cry for mercy Deliver me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Blot out my transgression. Hide your face from my sin. If not, I am undone. Even when the need and trouble are less than you deserve and all the trouble you face faces only because of your sin, not crying out to Him for mercy and help in time of need shows that you still may secretly think that you can pay off your sin by your suffering. And if you suffer long and hard enough, maybe God will be happy with you again. And either way, we miss the point and misunderstand the problem. He is coaching us to feel and know and act upon our utter dependence on Him. How much more would we bring every care, every anxiety to Him if we learned this truth and let it take root deep down within
0: us, brothers and sisters? Verse 17. Some were fools.
1: Some were fools through their sinful ways. And because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. They drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His deeds in songs of joy. This text shows us I believe that God's glory in the gladness of those He has redeemed matters to Him most of all. It matters to Him so much more than the glory He gets from judgment and condemnation. It also shows us that we make terrible, terrible gods. What is our response? Maybe to even our own children when they get into trouble because of their
0: own folly?
1: How do we feel when people don't listen, they don't listen, they don't listen, they don't listen and fling back your advice into your face and then when things go exactly as bad as you said they would, they come to you for
0: help? Statements like, tough luck and I told you so, Betray wickedness within us. We are so unlike God towards sinners. What is worse is we're sinners ourselves.
1: If God were to for one moment one instant take the posture of I told you so towards us, it would result in unending ruin for all of us. The only reason you're saved and headed for heaven is that God has decided not to give you the answer of tough luck.
0: Told you so. In short, if God treated us like we wish we were allowed to treat others, hell would be for all of us.
1: Consider this even his words are healing words. He sends out his word and heals them. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. What is the effect of our words on sinners? or those who struggle,
0: especially when they're fools.
1: The point, though, is more personal than this. When we don't see the Lord's merciful kindness and steadfast love, we will be embarrassed to ask Him for provision, especially when it's our own folly that has gotten us into the mess. As we saw earlier, God's purpose in bringing us to the point of suffering under the consequences, even of our own folly, is to humble us to the point where we will ask Him to do something about it. As one Old Testament scholar said, commenting on the Psalms, God is somehow honored when we make all of this His problem. And I would add, even if all of this, the mess we're in, is our own fault, Don't you realize that that is exactly the megaseme of the Gospel? God has ordained that He would be glorified in redeeming sinners from their own affliction, their own problem that's all their own fault. The most basic prayer then of the Lord God to save you is this, Lord, I know I deserve all this trouble and far worse because of my sin. Will you please take it away? That's the appeal of someone who knows they need mercy and is utterly undone if God doesn't do something about it. We have nothing. We bring nothing to the table. We are desperate. We need Him. And so the point is, Our prayers of petition, even as Christians, are just God replaying this theme over and over. He really, really likes this theme of His people coming to the point where they realize we got nothing without Him, and we need Him to help us in everything, and so we come to Him willingly and eagerly asking Him for that which we need. And our unwillingness to come to Him with our petitions, our prayers for the things we need is essentially refusing to play our part in this theme playing over and over. He wants to hear this theme play out in the lives of His people over and over. Are we doing our part? What would it change about your prayers even with the trouble that is all your stupid fault if you saw even that as something God ordained play out the themes of the Gospel and your salvation day after day after day.
0: Verse 23. Some
1: went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded, and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. God gets glory in deliverance. That's the point, I think, of this episode. This is the most extended episode in the psalm. And I think in it we see one of the most fundamental principles or insights at play in prayers of petition. These men are not in trouble because of any sin. They're not being disciplined. They're not in this mess because of folly. They're quite literally minding their own business. They're fulfilling the cultural mandate, we might even say. So why does God pick on them? From start to finish in this psalm, the situations leading up to the trouble that the people find themselves in and the trouble itself that the psalmist clearly asserts as God's sovereign prerogative. And in this, it's, all, it's even more personified that He is out there raising up the winds and the waves with His own hands. Why does God pick on them? The danger they are in, their deadly peril, is simply because God wants to show His power.
0: Their peril is genuinely
1: terrible. There is no more dark or grim imagery for the ancient Near Eastern mindset and Hebrew poetry than the deep. That's where darkness dwells. That's the abode of the chaos monster, Leviathan. There they are in this cosmic arena
0: and about to die to be consumed by the sea.
1: In this, this cosmic demonstration of God's power is completed. The the, the story comes to its completion when the people finding themselves in it cry out to Him for deliverance. Understand what the cry itself claims. That God is in control even over this. God is in charge even over the deep. That's the point. And this story plays out in almost identical terms on the Sea of Galilee. This One commands the winds and the waves and they obey Him. The Lord brings them to a point of terror to teach them, unforgettably, the glory of His sovereign
0: rule. Do you see
1: how much glory is left undeveloped when we, the people of God, do not cry out to Him in our trouble? Where we won't, in our prayers, make the explicit claim, God can change this if He wants to. He's in control of even this. And He will if that is His desire. Have we learned our lesson if we never Ask him to calm the winds and the waves. Obviously not literally. I don't think Lake Coeur d'Alene will ever amount to this. Certainly there is Christian wisdom in knowing what the winds and the waves are in your life and in the life of our church and in our nation. Do you still believe he rules the winds and the waves, even the deep, even the chaos, even the ancient serpent? Do you believe that they are all under His control? Do you believe in view of His control and steadfast love that He desires to actually wield that power on the behalf of His people? Would someone,
0: would someone answer yes
1: to those questions by listening to your prayers?
0: That's where the rubber really hits the road, brothers and sisters.
1: One way we see our lack of faith is how we are sometimes embarrassed to hear the God-sized prayers of our children. Dear Jesus, please save everyone. Please help everyone. Please heal everyone. That's probably closer to an Elijah-like prayer than most of what we pray in our sophistication
0: and theological knowledge.
1: And that's part of why we need a prayer meeting. To stir one another up. To pray these God-sized prayers. To even calm the winds and the waves. Because God desires to flex and show His power and the glory of His sovereign rule as we His people cry out to Him to do that very thing.
0: I'll quickly read verses 33-42. through He turns the rivers
1: into a desert When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, He pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste. But He raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. This passage shows us very briefly as I comment on it that The Lord loves to overturn expectations. He loves to do the counterintuitive thing. He loves creating stories that feature role reversal. All the powerful, all the mighty, and all the proud, the great ones.
0: He will bring low and to nothing.
1: And He will humble all the universe to its knees, not to a mighty archangel in glory, but before a humiliated, despised, and rejected Messiah, born in filth, taking on our repulsive shame and guilt, and dying on
0: a cursed cross.
1: When we look at our lives in the world and how things usually go, and pray within the boundaries of those statistical outcomes, we show that we don't really believe that God is the same God that we just read about in verses 33-42. through We're just asking God to take us from one category of statistical outcome to another. We make our prayers small in proportion to the smallness of our faith. Of course, He will only do that which genuinely glorifies Him, but He is working in your heart even now through the content of this psalm and through my comments on it. Will it cause you to abandon your tentative and statistically driven and small God-dishonoring sized prayers? Verse 42 shows us His intent in this. Putting all this together. His plan, His desire, His fight is to extract from His people, His righteous ones, gladness as they see God do this kind of thing. Our part is to play a role in praying that He would do so. And... He desires to shut the mouth of the wicked as they see His deliverance and His provision at work.
0: Are you praying like this?
1: Do you see God as the same One who acts like the one described in verses 33-42? through Who would turn a stream into a
0: desert just if it would make the righteous glad and shut the mouth of the wicked. verse 43
1: whoever is wise let him attend to these things let them consider the steadfast love of the lord there's perhaps grounds for a theological definition of wisdom understanding just how central the lord's steadfast love is to his character plans wisdom and will our laziness in prayer then our tentative way of praying is rooted not then just in general lack of trust of Him, or general belief that we don't need Him, but more precisely, it is rooted in us not believing
0: Him when He tells us just how loving He is. But Jesus came to prove the love of the Father.
1: Our tentative, placid prayers betray something wicked within us we don't know and don't even want to know how much we depend on His love.
0: Because it's the, it's the end of pride.
1: How much would your prayers change if you understood that coming to Him even with small and what may seem like trivial prayers for things like food and, and whatever else you need, if you saw those prayers and those needs
0: as the way He has chosen to prove how much He loves you. Trust in His fatherly commitment to love you. This is what it means to be
1: spiritually mature. Conviction and trust in His love are worked down into our hearts as we come to Him as if He actually were a loving Father.
0: Brothers and sisters,
1: are you persuaded of the steadfast love of the Lord? Do you wish to grow more rooted and stable in His love?
0: Then let us return to Him. And in
1: everything, with prayers and supplication, make our requests known to Him. We ought always to pray
0: and not lose heart. Father, thank You. Thank You for this grand design. You have set the universe in motion to show that You alone are provider. That You alone are the one we need. Grant us the humility to play our part in showing this to be the case in our lives and in the lives of our church and as we bring the Gospel of Your provision, Your grace, Your mercy to a world that needs it. In Jesus' name, Amen.